Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today. When she finished her long run as Elsa in the Broadway musical Frozen, she was pretty sure she would just take a long needed rest. But then the role of Rose in Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori's Caroline or Change was coming back to Broadway and she knew she had to do it. Welcome the extraordinary Casey Levy to the podcast. A-okay. Hey everyone, my guest today is Casey Levy. Casey is currently starring on Broadway in the revival of Carolina Change after originating the role of Elsa in Disney's Frozen on Broadway. She recreated the iconic role of Fantine in the 2014 revival of Les Mis, also on Broadway. She is known to New York and London audiences for originating the roles of Molly in Ghost and Sheila in the Tony Award-winning revival of Hair, Other Broadway credits include Wicked and Hairspray. In concert, she headlined Carnegie Hall with the New York Pops. And also, little known fact, backed up Sir Rod Stewart during his Las Vegas residency. Her EP, With You, is available everywhere you enjoy EPs. How lucky am I to have the glorious Casey Levy on the podcast today? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, I have seen you in so many things and always come away going, how can someone sing like that, look like that, act like that, <laughs> like have all the things um, and made me mad and happy at the same time? <laughs> so, Well, that's incredibly kind of you. Um, I'm glad you have seen me on stage before. Um, I have most recently. Crazy to- Oh, yeah. did you see Carolina Change? Of course I did. Oh, good. Of, I'm so glad you were there. Of course I did. Um, so the people who are the writers of Caroline or Change, um, they this is their first project, right? Tony Kushner. Yeah, they're newbies. <laughs> they're, they're new to the scene. And Got a lot story. of promise, those two. Oh, I hope, <sighs> I hope people get it. I hope people Me get too. it. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I would love to like, let's just start with the now and then we can jump sure. around to the before, which is tell me how this part came to you. How is it going? What's your takeaway about a month in now to the show? Maybe more? Yeah, a little bit more. Um, it's been pretty wonderful top to bottom, I have to say. Um I was finishing up my run as Elsa when they announced that they were bringing Sharon over with Carolina Change. And Sharon and I are old friends from Ghost the Musical, which we did together in the UK. So um, I was aware that she had done this production 
in the UK and on the West End. Um, and I had seen maybe, you know, a clip of their rehearsal process, but didn't know too much um, about it. And I'd seen a production of Carolina Change in Chicago years ago when my then boyfriend, now husband, was on tour with Mama Mia and I was visiting him and loved the show then, but wasn't like a Carolina Change know-it-all, like really didn't know the music, but vaguely remember that there was a role in it for me. And so when I saw it was coming over and I was wrapping up my run with Frozen, I thought, let me look into that. And I emailed my agents and I said, I think there's a part for me in this. And I think it's a good part, but I can't quite remember. So can we just flag that? And then the audition came in and then I looked at the material and was like, oh, this is my next job. I'm going to go get this. So I just decided because that's sort of how I get a little one track minded. And I worked my tushy off. Um, prepping for the audition so that I could walk in and be Rose. And I wore my Bubby's vintage dress from the 60s. And I walked in and Janine Tesori said, oh my God, you look like Rose. And I said, yeah, this is my Bubby's dress, actually. I just felt like I wanted to bring her along for the ride. And um, had a couple of magical auditions and felt like it was the right thing. And um, and then I got it and then we rehearsed it and I was terrified the whole time. And then we closed down because of the pandemic a day before our first audience. <laughs> so it was quite a roller coaster ride. So when you just referenced the fact that you had decided to finish your run as Elsa, um, was that because you, so it wasn't, I had always assumed the Carolina change had been offered to you. And so that was sort of how you were segueing from one show to the other. So you had already decided you were going to. Yeah. Patty and I, we were coming up on the ends of our contracts in February. So okay. we knew it was coming to a close and we've been doing it for so long, three years by that point. And um, I was in love with that experience. And obviously, I mean, anytime you close a show, it's always bittersweet, but that one, especially just because it was such a, amazing ride for the two of us and um such a long chapter and such a huge chapter um we had all these feelings about it and then it just so happened that the caroline revival was coming in around the same time so um i thought i might have you know a little bit of time off to just breathe but when that opportunity came i had to seize it and so i ended up actually doing double duty so my last two weeks in frozen i was rehearsing during the day for caroline as well which and then <laughs> got 15 months, actually, to rest, Correct. as it turns out. But who knew? So when you say, um, I just made sure, aside from the dress, and it's always such an incredible thing to have either a costume piece or something in your pocket that sort of grounds mm -hmm. you in the time and space of this character we're, we're reading for. But mm -hmm. how did you prepare? What does that mean to you, starting with this part in particular? Sure. Well, for me, it's always about getting as cozy with the material as possible so that I can be free in the room. So the number one thing is just reading it, reading it, reading it over and over and getting it in my voice and getting it in my brain and getting out of the pages. So that was step one. And that takes a lot of time, more time than most actors than we want to, to deal with it. You know, um, it's what I teach to my coaching students all the time, too. It's like it's the unsexy part of the work. It's um, the work. Yeah, but if you do put that time in and let yourself kind of grant yourself the luxury of that time, then when you do get up on your feet, you're going to start to make some more exciting choices and inhabit the role a little bit more than if you try to kind of 
do it all at once. Um, so it was a lot of renting rehearsal space um, and going in the room alone and working on it and trying things and getting off book and figuring out how does she move. You know, this is the 60s. This is a very different time. Um, and Rose's music is so difficult to learn. It's so complicated. Um, there's nothing sort of melodic you can hang your hat on. It's really jumpy and um, there's strange notes coming out of left field every moment and cutting people off and jumping in. And so uh, that took a lot of preparation more than you know learning a, a pop song um, for most other auditions. It was just more complicated and more technical. And because you knew Sharon, the great Sharon Clark from mm -hmm. already working together in London, which is such an extraordinary thing when that happens, did you reach out to her and say, hey, I'm going in on this. Do you have any advice or thoughts? I didn't want to put her on the spot. So I just, I think I messaged her after my first audition and said, hey, just so you know, I just went in and wouldn't that be wild if this happened? Um, and she wrote back and was like, oh, that would be pure joy, which I could just hear her say, that's like her favorite phrase. Um, so she was jazzed about the fact that I, you know, it might be the two of us. And after my first audition, you know, I'm sure you've spoken to all the actors you speak to, like you sort of know when you've booked it, right? Like you sort of know in the room when things are clicking. And I, I was pretty certain that it was gonna go my way. And um, so I was excited to email her and sort of say, let's hope this happens because what a gift it would be to work together again. And when you're in the room working with, is the creative, who's in the room the first time you go in? So it sort of depends. Like the stage in, I'm at at the moment, I'm often in the room with several people at least, you know, usually the director, the writers usually, sometimes not the first audition, sometimes the writers come later, but at this point, usually I'm, I'm in with the writers right, right away. And, and for um, this one, who was literally in the room that day? Literally the first day, it was not Janine and Tony. They came to my callback. Okay. Um, I came to their callback session, I should say. Um, <laughs> so the I like how was, you think, lady. Yeah, exactly. let's, let's, let's reel it in here, Levy. Um, no, the opposite. So, <laughs> but the first time it was Michael Longhurst and Nigel Lilly, so the director and the music supervisor from the UK who had done it over there um, and who were in charge of mounting it here, along with Chris Fenwick, who was at the time our conductor um, and whose wife is a dear friend of mine. Um, We've done a couple shows together and he's brilliant. He ended up working on, I believe, Kimberly Akimbo. And so um, Joseph Joubert has now stepped in as conductor and um, music supervisor, but he, he wasn't part of it last year. So he was there and then all the people from casting and, you know, a reader, or that kind of thing. Actually, there wasn't a reader for this because it's an operetta. So, uh, yeah, I just did some solo sections for the audition. That was the material they gave me. Were you um, scared? So probably like 10 people. Um, no, I love auditioning. You so do. I'm never, yeah, I really am into it. It appeals to the, the like competitive sports girl in me. I grew up playing basketball and like, I love team sports. I love the pressure. I love opening nights. Like, obviously you get nervous and excited, but it's not debilitating. It's more like, Ooh, this is fun. I get to go in and try on this character. I always try to think of it as like an opportunity rather than a, I have to do this thing. Cause then it gets to feel more joyful. So let's, for the for the very few people who may not know the story of Carolina Change and mm -hmm. where Rose specifically fits into this puzzle, can you just yep. share a little bit from your perspective, what is the show about and what is your journey in the show? 
Yes. So this story is about a black woman named Caroline Thibodeau who works for a Jewish family um, in the 1960s in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And it's about her, truly her story, um, and her relationship to her the little boy that lives in the home um, that she works at and her to her employers and how it how certain events um, bring about change in her um, and her relationship with her daughter, who is the embodiment of change um, at the time in America. She is very much on the front foot of the civil rights movement. Um, so it's a story centered around Sharon's character. And I play Rose, the stepmother who is dropped into a grieving household where my best friend has passed away. And I move from New York City to the South, marry my dead best friend's husband, and attempt to become a new mom to her son, Noah, who hates me. And my husband, played by John Cariani so brilliantly, is um, very deep in grief and he's sort of withdrawn and unable to engage. And Rose is very uncomfortable having a maid. That's not something she grew up with or is accustomed to. She's a New York liberal Jew in the 60s. Her father is very uh, left wing and very um, opinionated and very New York-y. it's about the clash of the North and the South. It's about what's happening in the country in the 60s. And it's this small story that has themes echoed throughout that are happening in a bigger way in the country and in the world at the time. I hope that sums it up. That's a lot to unpack in terms it's of- It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> in terms of Rose's personal journey, like mm-hmm. just what does her journal look like? When Rose is journaling each day, um, marrying your best friend's husband, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've done a lot of table work at the beginning of the process. So can we talk a little bit about the table work? Tony Kushner, for uh, literally the one person who's visiting from Mars and doesn't know who we're talking about, (laughs) Angels in America, among other things, Janine Tesori, Fun Home among other incredible things. So um, you're sitting around the table. Your character has a lot of mountains to climb in terms of finding her way with everyone in the house that she's living Mm -hmm. in with now, right? So Mm -hmm. when you're sitting around the table with your director, is there that kind of table work like you would do on a play A hundred percent. I mean, we had to do a tremendous amount of table work for this. And it's so funny that this is an operetta because it feels like a play. It does. It's completely sung through musical. And yet it feels more like a play than any other show I've worked on on Broadway. Interesting. Um, And that's that's a testament to the brilliant writing and just the layers that you said, all the unpacking of the things going on. Um, So we did a lot of time talking about, we spent a lot of time talking about the timeline of these characters how long have Rose and Stuart been married? How long ago did Betty die? Um, How long was she sick for? Um, Why are they just meeting my father for the first time at Hanukkah? He didn't come to the wedding. Was there a wedding? So we had all of these um, 
questions to answer. And John Cariani and I did a lot of work, the two of us just trying to piece together like this, how is this working and why are they married? Um, you know, do they sleep in the same bed? Do they sleep in the same room? What's happening here? So that was all really exciting work that started before uh, the pandemic, of course, because we were a day away from our first preview, but deepened over the course of the 18 months of the shutdown. And then we re-examined and fine-tuned it a little bit this time um, and got really clear on those answers so that we could bring that to to the show. And is this show, is this story based on Tony Kushner's life? Yes, yes. And is the so, part that you play, is this specifically true? Did he lose his mother or some of this made no, up? He did not. So some of this is made up, but his mother was sick with cancer in a way. She survived, thank goodness. Um, but she was away for a chunk of time. And I think it was unexplained. I, I, I remember him telling us that at the time they didn't want to talk about it. So I don't know how much he knew as a child about what his mom was dealing with. Um, which must have been really scary and awful to have that question mark. So um, parts of the Rose story are true, um, but Rose as a character is is a new addition. Okay. And then you have the, the, the stress, I would imagine, as an actor. Sometimes when you're not, you know, I feel like in the things I've seen you play, you are so clearly the heroine of the story. Right. You know, mm -hmm. because musicals are often so broad strokes in that way, even the greatest musicals. But very early on, we're like, this is the villain and this is not the villain. Right. Totally. The thing that's so glorious about this show is the lines are very blurred in that way. Um, but yeah. I'm sure you had some feelings about what mm -hmm. your role in order for this story to be successful, how committed Rose has to be to the lesson she's trying to teach and the story she's trying to tell. You're also yes. really great friends with the woman at the center of the thing. So how do you navigate that or how did you? So I, I love how you just summarized all of that because it's so true. I, I was very nervous about all of these aspects and um, I, I was scared, you know, I mean, yes, I wanted the job and I went in and made sure I got it. But then once you get the job, it's like, Oh, shit, now I have to do the thing, right? So then that's when the fear set in of like, how do I navigate this? And is she the villain? And I remember saying to Mr. Kushner in rehearsals one day, so Rose is the bad guy, Rose is the villain, right? And he immediately shut that down and said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Rose thinks she's doing the right thing. And that changed everything for me. I realized I'd been judging Rose rather than just being Rose up until that point in the process. And so when I started to look at her as someone who is just trying desperately to do the right thing and who happens to fail, then I found her, it sounds so actory, but whatever, I found her humanity and her um, heart really. And I realized that she's not, it, it's, it would be easy to write her off as the bad guy. It would be easy to say, look at this woman saying all these awful things to her maid. When in actuality, she's making all sorts of mistakes that definitely need to be remedied, but she just doesn't have the skills. She doesn't know. Uh, she's trying and she's lonely and she's uncomfortable. And so when I jumped off from that point, a lot of things became clearer and the relationships became clearer between myself and Noah, between Rose and Caroline, between Rose and Stuart. 
And I came to start to see that the whole show is a show about people. It's like these misconnections about these people. Everybody's trying to find their way and everybody's failing pretty spectacularly, Yeah, um, which I think is what makes it so exciting and relatable. Well, it's funny because there's so much sadness in this house for for all the reasons, um, mm-hmm. the time period and, and what Caroline is up against in her life and and what was going on in, in her personal abusive relationship at home. So there are mm-hmm. all these layers um, and people trying to find love, right? Yeah. So much of this is just people trying to find love in the face of loss and really devastating circumstances. And mm-hmm. yet, I cannot believe how funny you are. Um, also, like there is so much for those of you who haven't had the chance to see it yet, the, the amount of humor it is greatly abundant in this show mm-hmm. as well. And I feel like, um, what an incredible thing to be dealing with these unbelievably difficult topics, real life things going on today, just as much as they went on in the sixties. Um, and yet to have release moments that, that the writers have given us. I want to go back because I'm just blown away um, by people in the arts who are as kind of um, clear about what they deserve as people who are, like if someone said, well, you know what? I worked in this company for seven years and then I worked my way up the corporate ladder. No one would be like, wow. That's like, how are they so confident, right? Like you just uh-huh. be like, right. So that's sort of the way in which the advertising company works or whatever the things are. And then when you talk to actors who say like, oh, no, I love auditioning or, oh, no, I'm that's my part and I'm going to go get it. Mm-hmm. There, There's a way in which our, our ears like prick up and go, what? what? Like, how did, how can she say that? Where did that come from? Because that's the dream to be able to take ownership of your craft, your passion and ambition and say, well, that's why I'm here. Like, I love this thing and (laughs) and I want to do it. And, you know, uh, you don't always feel that way, right? Like it's met with it, it, the yin and the yang is always there of like, the days where you're like, I got this, this is my part. And the days where like, I suck, I suck, I'm the worst. Right. I'm never working again. I right. still think I'm never working again at the end of every Broadway show I do. I'm is like, that oh, true? Well, clearly, oh yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm never getting hired again. So I should start to like come up with a business plan. Do I go back to school? Like, what do I want to do? <laughs> so the imposter syndrome is always there, you know, and it fluctuates sometimes hour to hour or day to day or month to month. And I think that's just um, a reality of being in this world and, so yes, please don't mistake my confidence on some ends. I, I have just as much insecurities and worries as the next guy. But I think that's actually what makes, that's what works for me. You know, yeah. it, I bring all of that. I bring the confidence and the insecurity to every audition and every show I work on. And um, I think it's that vulnerability. It's like being able to acknowledge both of those things that is a bit of a superpower because if you talk to people that work all the time, they're not shy about saying, they're, they're not saying I'm a badass all the time. They're saying I need help or they're saying I'm scared and they're letting you see them. Um, and I think that when you let people see you, you feel seen and you feel heard and you feel more whole and you do better art, you know? So it's like a big crazy cycle. But what is undeniable 
is you know, I imagine, that you can sing, right? Like that is the same way someone who like knows that they can throw a ball like really, really fast, right? This is a fact. (laughs) Like they they can time it and I just threw a ball at 102 miles an hour, right? Like that's just a fact. So Mm -hmm. the fact that you not just can sing, but like have this really powerful voice, some people call it like some a belter in in the Broadway business, um, right. and can make sounds come out of you that are so beautiful and godly at times. So, when did you and all the other stuff like acting and all that stuff like there's craft and all of that, but at mm-hmm. some point early on in your life, you must have realized like I can really do this thing that not everybody can do. Yeah. No, so I how did, did I, let's go back. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in a really musical household. So my dad's a family doctor. My mom um, ran his practice from like the administrative end. And my brothers are both, uh, my older brothers are both in the entertainment industry, director, writer, producer, director. Um, But they started out in theater young and I just wanted to do everything they did. So I just wanted to like tag along and do shows. Are you the youngest? I'm the youngest. Okay. And I all of our home videos or us singing, you know, everything was musical. So um, music was always just kind of there. And I was always singing. My dad used to sing me to sleep and we would harmonize when I was little, like three, four years old. I was doing harmony with him at night to like old Beatles songs and uh, old standards, like till there was you, you know, just he'd tuck me in and that was our special time. And, but I was quite shy um, about, I wasn't the kind of kid that wanted to perform in front of, you know, the family or, anything like that. I was not into that. So I would sing sort of in private. And I remember having like a tape recorder and I would like go into my room and like close all the doors and just like sing a little bit to try to listen back. Cause I could tell I could sing and I knew it made me happy, but I wasn't ready to sort of share that with, with everybody. And it wasn't, I mean, I did plays growing up, mostly plays, um, in high school and community theater. Um, and I only knew a few musicals like Rent and Les Mis that I worshipped and loved and saw in Toronto growing up. I, I grew up just outside of Toronto, Canada. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to New York for drama school that I really learned about musical theater properly. And by then I knew I wanted to make a career in it and I just needed to kind of get the knowledge and um, and train properly. Because um, by then I... I had taken plenty of singing lessons and acting lessons and dancing lessons growing up, but I got really serious in high school and was like, okay, I want to move to New York. I want to be, I want to be on the Broadway stage. And so you came to New York and you went to, you started training here. Uh, Yeah. I went to AMDA at 19 years old. Okay. Um, And it was an exciting thing for me because at the time I was thinking I would study Shakespeare in Canada at like University of Toronto or Ryerson Um, or George Brown Theater School, a couple of the big programs there in Ontario. And I didn't really think about New York as an option until I saw these auditions. And by then it had been way too late to write my SATs, which we don't do in Canada, um, and apply to U.S. programs. I didn't know about University of Michigan or CCM or any of those schools. Like I just didn't know about any of that. I knew there was Juilliard. And then I heard about this school at AMDA and it was two years and it was musical theater right in the heart of New York City. And I was like, sign me up. Um, And I got in and I got out and I started working right away because I got such great um, audition training there. Wow. Okay. So 
first of all, your parents were like, I mean, doctor. So sometimes they want, I mean, obviously your dad did a tremendous amount of education and many, many years to get his degree. So was there any issue with you? Because when you go to AMDA, that's not like a fallback degree. That's like- This is, and it's just a two-year program. Like there's no- It's a a certificate or a diploma. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's um, it's not a degree pro. Actually it is now, but when I went, it was not a degree program. But the family Um, was like, we support you. Yeah. You know, my parents always wanted us to do what made us, made us happy. And I think they would have loved one of us to be a doctor or a lawyer and, you know, do the, the regular life thing. But when they saw our passions were in the entertainment business, they always supported it. They never tried to make us something we weren't. I want to sidebar for one second, which is, did how religious or not religious is or was your family when you were growing up? It's Hanukkah. Um, so I've been thinking yeah. a lot about everyone's posting their Hanukkah menorahs totally. on social media. Where yeah. is that for you? So we were, we had a really traditional upbringing. Um, technically, we would fall more in the conservative movement. Our synagogue was conservative, but we didn't go every week. We went on high holidays. We had family Shabbat dinners. Um, mostly when we were really little, once we were hanging out with friends, you know, right. fell by the wayside. I went yeah. to Camp Ramah my whole life. So I- In America or they have them camp. in Canada also? There's one in Canada. Okay. So I went to that one. And- um, Did you, are you, well, you might be a few years older than Ben Platt, but he's like a big- Yes, I'm a few years older than Ben yeah. and he is Ramah, California. I'm Ramah, Canada, <laughs> but we have our Ramah in common and we've done some some stuff with Ramah since because right. we both feel so strongly about our, our connection. Jewish camping. Yeah. yeah. It's just such a like, it, I think people that aren't Jewish hear that and they think what on earth, but it's such a part of, I mean, did you have, did you go to camp I did. All, I just think like there are so many days in my life where I'm walking down the street and there's a camp song in my, like it just becomes totally. this crazy yeah. um you know, soundtrack <laughs> to your life. Totally. Uh, yeah. And whether it's a lot cheers. of you growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. The camp cheers or the or the Jewish songs or, you know, totally. the blessings over the candles yeah. and the bread and all of that. Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah. So like the things we did as a family were really about the rituals. Um, and that's where, and of course, music is so ingrained in Jewish ritual. So yes. that was a big influence on me from a young age too. And the beautiful melodies and the... Um, sort of the sorrowful sound of a lot of the prayers, I think, influenced my um, taste in music in a lot of ways, too. Not that we listen to Jewish music. We just sing them in synagogue. You know, we would sing the prayers on Yom Kippur, and they sound sad. And I was like, that sounds good to me. And I like that sound. Um, So that's, it's sort of, just sort of part of who I am as as an artist. It's not really, I mean, I definitely grew up more religious than I identify as now, but it's more about just like that cultural, traditional element of Judaism yeah. um, for me. I was thinking about that when I saw Carolina Change. Just, yeah. you know, there's so much of that in in the music. Mm-hmm. Specifically, there are certain scenes that, that yes. revolve around Jewish ritual, but also just sort of... Um, the music, some of the some of the chords really feel totally. like that. Um, okay, so then you get out of Amda and you're like, I started working right away. So how, what was that? What was the first? Um, my first job was Maureen in the National Tour of Rent. Shut I, up. Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye. I mean, it was like my dream role. It was like what Hamilton is now to the young kids. It's like that's yes. what Rent was, you know, Jonathan yes. Larson and Rent was everything to us. I would sing it at summer camp, you know, of course. with all my friends. Um 
So, uh, although granted, when I saw my first production of Rent at 14 in Toronto, I just wanted to be Mimi. I was like, Maureen who? Give me Mimi all the way. Yeah. And I realized I'm not a Mimi, I'm a Maureen. Um, (laughs) So that was a dream role and a dream come true. And I I think I went on the road the same week I graduated um, from AMDA. And was that from an open call or is that- Yeah. So you went to one of those open calls. I used to go to every open call under the sun. And that's what I tell people to do. Just audition for everything when you're starting out. Say yes, go and sing and line up. I don't know if lining up is a thing that still has to happen. Yeah. Probably not with, you know, the way the internet is and stuff. But, you know, I used to go line up at five in the morning and sign up on a piece of paper, stand outside of Chelsea Studios and go in and sing 16 bars. And that's how I got my first job. That's bananas. Yeah. That yeah. is bananas. Yeah, like I didn't have, you know, the swanky agent right out of school or the, you know, I didn't get the Broadway show at the same time as I got the TV series. And, the, you know, that's just, I really started like old school, working my way up and non-equity national tour and then working my way up onto tours, other tours, equity tours, and then got to Broadway finally with Hairspray. So um, and I love that part of my story because I feel like I learned about elements of the business that not everybody these days gets the chance to do. Like I was an understudy. I did go on a crappy non-equity tour that was awesome at the time. You right, know, like I right. learned those life lessons. And um, so that when the really big success started to come, I really appreciated it even more deeply, I think. Well, let's talk a minute about that because you were an understudy for Alphaba. Mm-hmm. Um, before you went on the tour, correct? Um, before I went to LA, I did to it LA. In LA. Okay, yeah. so that must have felt. I mean, what did? That's such a huge show, right? Yeah, and and it has taken a while for people to understand that actually there's the there are covers, there are understudies. It doesn't mean you automatically go on, right? But you did. Yeah, I got to go on six months into my year of covering. So, I mean, it was not right away because the standby always goes on. Right. Um, But when I was covering Julia Murney, when she went on vacation, I got a couple shows that were scheduled and my family was able to fly in and I was able to kind of gear up for that mentally. And I'd been rehearsing it for six months, but, you know, never been painted green or had a put in or any of that. So it was huge when I went on for the first time. And of course... The creative team was there, and that's when it started the kernel of me taking over for Eden in LA. Wow. Do yeah. they always come when I someone mean, goes on for the first time? Or I someone? Think that s- someone tries to, for sure. And um, Lisa Laguio, who's the associate director over there, she I think came to see how I did. Yeah, they want to sort of check out <laughs> the people they hire, make sure they can do the gig. Um, and and so I was so grateful that she saw my my first two shows. Um, and got so excited was, about it. Oh, yeah. It was a thrill. It was insane. You know, I, I had just come off of making my Broadway debut a few months earlier in Hairspray as Penny. And I was thrilled to be in Wicked and a little bummed to be the understudy because when you're in your 20s and you've made your Broadway debut in a principal role, you're like, I don't know if I should go and understudy again, which is hilarious now looking back. But It is. But what made you decide? Like, who persuaded well, because it was you, Wicked. Right. Right. I didn't need a ton of persuading. I just needed my ego checked for a second, which made me realize, 
you know, Alphabet is not Penny. They're two very different roles in two very different shows. And I was really excited to be taken seriously as a dramatic actress. So I knew it was a huge opportunity and that I had tons to learn. And I was excited to take that on. Um, and I had been an understudy, so I knew how that felt and I knew what the gig was. Um, so I knew that I could do that well. I could be in the ensemble and do that well and have fun with my castmates and, and then start to really tackle the role of Alphaba. And I just, you know, was so fortunate to eventually play the part. That was just well, like brilliantly exciting. I am so happy you're here. I've had so many green sisters on this podcast. And I, I know feel you like have. every time yes. I get one more, um, it, it has not been lost on me that that role, aside from what the acting expectations are and what the singing expectations are for that part, I cannot believe what an incredible group of women have been cast in that role. Like mm -hmm. the most extraordinarily talented for sure, the kindest, yeah. social activist, um, generous, hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Like I can't even, when I go through like Jessica and, and Eden and mm -hmm. Shoshana, like all of mm -hmm. these and you, like it's just really like a coven of the most beautiful humans. It's incredible. I want to just ask you, because Frozen... I don't know. It's so iconic. And we think about legacy, like that's always going to be part of your story. All mm -hmm. these things are, but that's like, that yeah. was huge, right? I mean, to yeah. be at the center, especially after that movie success and that song, Let It Go, is the national anthem of every country <laughs> in the world. Um, yeah. You talked about going in for Rose and Carolina Change and just having this sense like, I'm wearing my Bubby's dress what let go let god right like you know yeah, other who totally. knows what's going to happen this director might have a friend he wants i mean there's only so much we of can course, do but course. you really did everything you could do and it felt pretty symbiotic pretty quickly uh between you and and the people in that room for frozen which had been workshopped in readings i mean there's so much you know musicals just take 100 years before we get to see them yes um <laughs> I think Patty was on the show and I think she was one of the few people who had literally been in it from like the day they Xeroxed the first script um, until I got to see you guys in it. But did yeah. you have that same feeling during that audition process? Like I'm Elsa. You know, eventually, yes, I did. Um, and I think that probably if I think back to all the jobs I've gotten and then gone on to do, I had an element of that in the room where there's just that little bit of magic happening in the exchange between the actor and the team where you feel it like, oh, it's like going on a great first date. Everyone's leaning know? in. Yep. And it's just the chemistry is there and it's hard to put your finger on what it is that's making it work, but it just is. So yes, I had that with, with Elsa. What did you wear I for think, Elsa? You did not wear your Bubby's um, dress. Did you wear your no, Bubby's dress? <laughs> so interestingly, no God. Um, when I went in for Elsa the first time, I was two months postpartum with my son and I, um, I had a really complicated pregnancy with him and he was a preemie and in the hospital for a long time. And it was just oh a very God. scary time, Yeah, but I knew that it was a massive audition. So I just kind of rallied and I think I just wore like a blue shirt and leather pants and I had a callback, didn't book it. 
then the directors changed. It went from Alex Timbers to Michael Grandage. And he wanted to call people in and kind of shop Start again, again for his Elsa and Anna. Yeah. So by then, when I went in again, it was many months later. So I think my son was a year old by then or almost. And uh, I think I just wore jeans and a cool rockery type of shirt and some boots and high heels. And just, I, I actually um, had another job in the works at the time. So I think there was an element of like, I don't need this job, even though I knew it was massive, obviously. Right. I mean, right. goes without saying. But I was able to trick myself into thinking like, oh, well, I'm just going to, you know, I don't really need to put too much weight in this, which is always the way to have a good audition is to not care, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. So I went in and I just kind of sang and did the scenes and I loved working with Michael and my friend Stephen Arimus was in there. Obviously the genius that is Stephen working on all these, many of the shows I've done. And so I knew I had a fan in the room and a friend and um, someone who knew what I was capable of. And after that, I sort of went, huh, I think, I think maybe this is a thing. And then for my later work session, I wore like a fully black, almost witch-like, you know, um, slim Elsa type dress, like a silhouette that would show me off as an, as an And Elsa. did you buy it or is that something you had from like concert performances? I think I had or... the top. I wore the, I wore a top I owned and I went and got like a, a long A-line black silk skirt. Um, so I did go out, I had a vision of what I wanted to wear yeah. and I didn't own anything. So I did like pick up something. Yeah. But then this is actually a good story. When I, when I had that callback, that work session, that's when I really knew, like, I think this is going to be a thing. And they had me come in and um, do a final final on stage at the Little Schubert Theater. That's where they did the final callbacks. I've never in my whole career had a, a Broadway callback on a stage before, it's which exciting. was really fun yeah. and felt kind of like old school, you know? Yeah. So they had all sorts of Elsas and Annas and... Um, Kristoff's and Hans's and Olaf's out in the waiting room. It was basically all of us that are friends and are always auditioning with each other. So it was like a big social scene. <laughs> and we went in in pairs and it was pouring rain that day. And I went out for lunch and had my hunter rain boots on and leggings. And then the top that I was wearing earlier for my first part of the audition that day. And when I came back in, Michael saw me holding my soup and my umbrella with my rain boots. And he said, darling, come here. I love what you're doing in there. I want you to wear this. Don't put on the, the dress and the heels. Come back in in the rain boots. And I was like, what? Are you serious? And I didn't know him from anybody. You know, right. we just had a couple auditions. And I, first of all, was like, oh, this is cool that he's, you know, giving me a little sidebar tip. So obviously what I'll he's take telling it. me is, yep, yep, I'll do what he says. So him and Bernie Telsey, who's been a champion of mine my whole career, yes. he came over and was like, yeah, yeah, just wear the rain boots in. So I thought, this is insane, but okay. So I went in in my rain boots and I did my final um, like that. And I booked it from that. And I think that they wanted less of the princess and more of the strength and the rain boots and me just being in my rain gear and my leggings and just sort of being bringing more of me to it and less this idea of what Elsa is. That's what, what sealed the deal for them. And that's just such a great lesson in remembering that like you just have to be the girl. You just have to be the person in the room. You know, even with something as huge and iconic as Elsa, it, you don't want to play the idea of who Elsa is. You just want to be Elsa. And the rain boots allowed me to tap into that side of myself that just brought the stuff of me as Casey into the world as Elsa and made them go, yeah, that's the girl. So, And how much do I love that 
often as a director, you know, they're they're spinning a lot of plates. And so for him, and sometimes like, I don't know about wardrobe, like yeah, that's going to be yeah. Ask Ann Roth, right? Like, they, right. you know, which, and that's fine. Like you don't have yeah. to be the guy who knows the design and the, you know, mm-hmm. but the idea that he kind of, I mean, that's so much about what it is, right? It's like the serendipity that you and he were in the waiting room at the same moment and you're in mm-hmm. your soup and, you know, you're Hale and Hardy yeah. and your hunters and like, yes, it's all, exactly. <laughs> by the way, exactly. we are always open to sponsorship by all of those. Thanks, Hale and Hardy <laughs> and Hunter Boots. <laughs> all right. Send us some boots. This is like, uh, I just love all the ways in which life has worked out for you because it means we get to see you in all of these things and how hard you work is just kind of extraordinary. Just knowing what goes into all of it. And that I hear like, I don't know if that's running back and forth outside your Sorry, door. Yes. It's children upstairs. I love running it. Like crazy people. And that's one the, child and one baby. Right. <laughs> and that's um, so guys, any of that that you heard during this episode, it's just special guest stars. <laughs> yes. Um, it's Isaiah and Tallulah. Oh my God. They're their making little, their podcast debut. That's very Yay! exciting. Okay. Um, I hope you'll come back because we haven't talked about Rod Stewart. Um, oh my gosh. If you can just give me like quickly, because uh, that's the a whole quickly. episode. Uh, that's a it's whole episode. So random and yes. crazy and fun. But my friend who I did Rent with, who was Joanne on the Rent tour with me, has been a backup singer of his for years. Okay. And right after I had Isaiah... And right after that first Frozen audition, she called me and said, one of the backup singers is leaving. Do you want to put yourself on tape and come out on the road with Rod Stewart if they pick you, you know, and we could like sing together. And I was like, well, I'm never working again on Broadway, clearly, because like I told you, that's what I always think. So I'm like, well, I have no job. I have a human now I have to support. Um, And I could be a backup singer, I guess. So I learned all this choreography on the computer, like my friend danced it sent it to me I learned it I had to tape do a self-tape and sent it off and then they chose me and then I panicked and I was like oh my god I don't know what I'm doing (laughs) Um, and then I flew out to LA and rehearsed in a room with one of the other dancers not my friend one of the other backups who taught me I think like 20 songs in four days with full choreography you know full production numbers um, and costume changes and stuff and I was totally terrified and then I went to Vegas with my son and a nanny because my husband was teaching at a university, still is, um, and couldn't come. So, uh, yeah, I went out to Vegas and did his shows in Vegas with him and sang backup for him. And it was such a joy and such a surprise and so scary at the same time. And what's your Rod takeaway? Oh, my God. He's the best. He's so kind to his team. His team has been with him for years and years. I mean, like the decade. His band sticks around. Um, I think... You know, he sent me flowers after my first show. I I felt very welcome there, but I was also like pretty clear that like I'm a Broadway girl. Like I don't know that I'll be here that long, but wow, thank you for this opportunity because you're a legend and like this is wild that I get to sing backup for you. And I got to feel like really sexy and sort of live my backup dancer dreams and um uh and really learn how to kind of pivot my skills for a different arena and a different medium a little bit. And it was really freeing to be a backup a little bit, you know, right. to back up this not legend. Not have the pressure, not, yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I thought it was so much fun and I grew a lot and I got a little bit of confidence back after my first baby, which I think I really needed at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of like you as a dancer, 
Mm -hmm. You're a dancer. mm, I would not say that. I would say I'm an excellent mover. And with time, I can do a lot of choreography, but I need a little bit of time. Okay. I'm not the like pick it, pick up four counts of eight in the audition. No, no, no. But you do understand the language. (laughs) I mean, you were able to do like 20 numbers and like, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can do that. Um, but you don't want me doing pirouettes or jumps on stage. Leave that to the pros. I will not ask (laughs) you. You don't want to see me do that. Okay. But before (laughs) I let you go, is there a little known fact about you not yet shared in this episode. Hmm. A little known fact. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm just having trouble thinking of one. Um, I guess something that's little known is that I'm, um, as much as I'm a city girl, I'm a real like crunchy hippie at heart. And I love a camping trip. I love um, a canoe and a kayak and a, a, a beer on a lake. It's like my favorite thing. I love that. All right. <laughs> well, here's to when when this run is over, a moment mm. of a kayak, a lake, and a beer. And Sounds thank good. you so, so much for being on the podcast today. What a joy. Thank you for having me. I've been such a fan of yours for a while, so I appreciate being included in the, the group of people you get to speak to. Oh, it's my honor. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are little known facts that you You know. Thank you to John Zaytoon, who is the talent coordinator for this episode. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.